Hello friends, Deacon Charlie Echeverry here with a special message before we start this episode. First of all, happy Easter to everybody. We are in this week, the octave of Easter, that eight day period of time that begins on Easter Sunday and concludes on the following Sunday, which we in the Catholic Church call Divine Mercy Sunday. And it's a very special time of year. In fact, of one of only two octaves or eight day special celebrations, the other one being Christmas, that we celebrate in the Catholic Church. And it's a very joyful time. It's a very special time. So in light of that fact, and also the fact that for the octave, I was going to be out of the studio, I thought it would be actually kind of cool to do something special during the octave for our Living the Call episode. And that's precisely what this episode is. You're going to hear in this episode from a dear friend of mine named Blake Adams. Now, I've known Blake for 26 years at this point. I can tell you that in my 20, in those 26 years, he is among, if not the most interesting person that I've come in contact with over that period of time. Why, you might ask? Well, he's a fascinating person who has an extraordinary background, a variety of different things that he's done, each of which is an interesting thing in its own right. He is a motorcycle builder. He's a surfer. He's a jujitsu practitioner. He's a former professional model. And he's also a tech media pioneer. Each of those things is worthy of discussion, so much so, in fact, that several months ago, I convinced Blake to do a travelogue with me on audio, basically to record an episode, kind of free form, just a conversation, focusing as a thematic each of those things, those facets that I just have mentioned, right? So I wanted to talk about his motorcycle background. I want to talk about his surfing background, his jujitsu background, the fact that he was a professional model for a period of time, and the fact that he was a tech media pioneer and a business person for, for many, many years. And so we set about doing that and we recorded over the period of many weeks, this kind of travelogue, right? Dedicating an episode to each of those different facets. And I told him that the final facet that I wanted to talk about was about faith or God. Now, you should know, and you'll kind of figure this out right away, Blake is not Catholic. In fact, I'm not even sure he identifies as Christian, but you'll listen to the episode and maybe you can make your own determination. In any case, I really thought that it was interesting to end the travelogue with a discussion about God and faith and what role that's played in his life. Now, after doing that episode, as part of this travelogue, I thought that it would actually be cool to release that singular episode on just that one facet of his life as an episode of Living the Call. And so that's what this is. This is one of those travelogue series, and I plan on putting out the entire travelogue at some point in the future as its own kind of serialized podcast. We'll see what happens with that. But in the meantime, I want to use that final episode in the travelogue when we talk about God as an episode of Living the Call, because I really think it was a fascinating conversation and one where I learned a lot about him. And frankly, I think maybe Blake learned a lot about himself. So what I invite you to do is listen to this um, episode with an open mind, with an open heart, hear what Blake has to say, this one particular person about just his faith walk from a non-Catholic perspective, maybe even from a non-Christian perspective and see what kind of insights you can derive from this conversation. One final disclaimer, for anybody who is offended by colorful language, there is some colorful language used in this episode. And so if you are uh, easily 
uh, frazzled by that kind of uh, language, you might want to skip this episode. But otherwise, um, you know, fully warned and disclaimed, please enjoy this episode of Living the Call with my dear friend, Blake Adams. Did you grow up with much of a faith life? Well, let's, let's see. Uh, grandmother was Presbyterian. Uh, so, yeah, I would say that was a good start. And then I went to a Roman Catholic school in Ohio. And you did? Yeah, I did. It was for two years. With elementary, middle school? No, middle school. Yeah, I took communion, the whole thing. Oh, really? So yeah. you had your sacraments? You received yeah, your sacraments? Yeah, the whole deal, yeah. Baptism and all that? Not baptism, but I, I did do the... You know, did do the process of communion. I mean, it was so long ago, I couldn't even tell you, but I, yeah. I know that it was, um, and then as I, uh, kind of traversed my twenties and into my thirties, um, I kind of lost my way a little bit with faith. But then when I came to California, uh, I actually found you know, this other avenue of spirituality. Mm. You know? Um, there's an enlightenment center on Sunset Boulevard. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I've been there. Um, I like that. It's a beautiful place. It's great. That's great. the meditation gardens on yeah, Sunset. And and on Sundays they have monks that come and they they give yep. a they give a uh, a service. It's really nice. Um you know my my wife is is you know she's Port, she's from Puerto Rico, so you know religion was a big part of her her upbringing, but her dad was Jewish and her and her mom was, you know, Catholic. So she comes from that. Her sisters I think her sister did convert to Judaism, mm. um, but, but but you said your grandmother was Presbyterian. Yeah, I wonder why you started with that because your grandma was a big fixture in your life when you were young. Yeah, yeah, I mean for sure. I mean she was. This the, is your mom's. She was my mom's. Yeah, your mom's mom. Yeah, and she was a big fixture in your yeah. in your life as a child. Right. And she had a she was an active member in the church, right? Okay. Yeah. So you know, you, I think what's interesting about the Midwest is if you if you look at the people who were at that church at the time. They they grew up in that church, and they became part of that church when they became adults. They and then they became contributors to the community through the church, mm -hmm. based on different phases of their lives. Right, mm -hmm. more active obviously when they were different ages than others. But well, it's a community. Yeah. yeah so it was, uh, and it was very much, it was very much a. Uh, not only was it just not only just a a, a, a practice of faith, but it was also there was a lifestyle around it. Right, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, what was the lifestyle? Just events. You know, you would go and do things. You would, you know, socially you would do things with other members of the church. Um, it's like any other, you know, social group. Um, so there was a social tie to it where uh, when I was in Catholic school and I went to every week, every Wednesday they would have, um, they would have mass. And uh, what was interesting was is that a lot of the people that went to that school at the time were not members of the church. They were they were students, but they weren't church members. That's right. Um, Still to this day, that's the case. Yeah. I think something like fifty percent is the average. Yeah, and I, I saw the disconnect even at a young age. Right, I saw a lot of kids that were um, even if they were like maybe they were wayward and they came in on a program uh, and they were coming from another part of town. And this is in Cincinnati, mm -hmm. um, so I was there for two years. Um, but I thought it was it was a it was a very different religion. Presbyterian was is so much different, and I don't, I'm not educated on Presbyterian uh, faith, um, and it didn't really it didn't indoctrinate me into religion. Um, 
Catholicism, I learned more about it because I was forced to. Hmm. As a student. As a student, right. Um, even though there was some, the teaching methods weren't by members of the church. They were just, you know, they were like charter school teachers. But then what's interesting about that is when you go to middle school in, in Cincinnati in the, in the 80s, when you would go to school as a boy, you would then go to an all-boys high school, preparatory school for Ivy League universities. So I was on my way to go to St. Xavier hmm. uh, High School in Cincinnati, which then a lot of guys went up to Northwestern. They went to Yale, Harvard, you know, whatever, Columbia, um, that I knew. Um, and it just, you know, I took the, you have to take an acceptance test, took the test, uh, got in, um, scanned my teeth. But I, uh, and then what, what happened was my, my mother and, Stepfather wound up um, having me come back to Florida, so it, it never got to actualize. How, how old were you when your parents split up? Oh my God, um, probably a year, two years old. So you you don't really have much of a conception of your parents, biological parents. I'm sorry, being together. No, God, no. Yeah, uh, you know it's interesting about that because uh, there's something to be said for the uh, for the parent. Uh, child dynamic in the mm -hmm. formative years um i think in my personal experience uh as a only child and as a uh child of a single mother um i actually had to take the brunt of both the male side of the parenting from a woman and also the female side of the parenting from a woman and the wires get crossed all the time they do and in a way it's kind of unfair to the single parent because they really can't yeah. do both genuinely right i yeah. mean it's it's tough and i will volunteer this which is interesting um took me many many years not to last re most recently actually and i'm 54 now but um one of the things that i found really interesting was uh, i sat with my wife one day and she was asking me some questions she said let's walk through uh a timeline and the timeline is going to be you know where do you think you met trauma where did you meet alcoholism like where did all these intersections happen and I was Who like, asked you this? My wife, you know, and I was like, it's a great question. Like, what? And I was like, all right. So we broke it down and almost to a forensic year by year account. And um, what I realized was as I was uh, young, what I realized in mo my mother, and I can't speak for other, other, um, other children that have been raised by a single mother, a single parent, but what I realized is that there was a lot of animosity towards the, the, the father and the child mm. was often used as this sh emotional shuttlecock and they were often used as they were weaponized against oh yeah that other that other uh partner that had, had you ever though acknowledged when, when did you begin to acknowledge any the the how old were you when you began to acknowledge any of the trauma brought about by just the fact that the separation of your parents happened. Like at I, what point? It, I didn't, I wasn't able, I wasn't emotionally mature enough to actually process it until recently, believe it or not, I, which is really strange. That's why I'm asking. Yeah, it yeah. was really weird. Um, it manifests itself in a lot of really strange ways. Hmm. Trauma um, is a serious, I think it's a, it's a serious issue that of course. is not addressed and it's, I think it's overlooked. I don't think it's widely understood. Um, 
and I started to actually understand it, believe it or not. I guy that I, I've ridden motorcycles with, he's, he's a, uh, he dealt with very similar issues that I dealt with as a child and his growing up and his father and everything. And um, what, I, what I started to mirror against that was there's a lot of similarities. I noticed that he has trauma. Mm-hmm. Huh. He's hiding a lot. He's, he puts up a pretty scary front, but you get behind that front and there's a lot of trauma buried inside there. I'm like, guy's got a lot of trauma. And then I started thinking about my life and I was like, wait a minute. I think I have a lot of trauma. Um, and what do you do when you're a young guy, you know, and you're, you're trying to figure yourself out and figure out, you know, oh, my, you know, okay, I'm straight. Okay. I'm, I'm you know, I'm not, I'm not homosexual. All right. Uh, I don't really understand women in the context of, you know, a normal family unit is, um, you know, the male father, the, you know, the female, the, the female, dynamic, the dynamic, and that's, that's broken. Hmm. Um, I have been used as, uh, kind of a vessel of animosity towards, you know, the, uh, the father. And what's really strange is that the, um, the father, uh, had a lot of the things that I wound up doing, but I wasn't actually connected with him when I was doing them, Hmm. such as just working with their hands, uh, Mm -hmm. being adventurous, riding motorcycles. I mean, doing things that are parallels, Right. Um, and when when the mother uh, sees that she identifies not me as, hey, my son's doing something great. It's more of that's what the guy who actually abandoned me and left me was doing. I have a real problem with that. Mm. And so here you are in your adult life. You're trying to make strides. You're overcompensating. You're doing all these things. You're you know, you're trying to posture your, your masculinity in these ways that you think is healthy. And all you're doing is you're turning these, you know, the, you're turning the knives on yourself, mm. not realizing, wow, man, like, wait a minute. I do believe that um, there's a, a lot of trauma as a result of that. And just to kind of give you the, the, the net net of that is it's a, kind of a long answer to your, to your question. But um, when my dad died last year, um, uh, the one thing that happened that really illuminated the fact that there, you know, there is trauma and, um, you know, uh, was, was largely due to the fact that when I actually told my mother, uh, the way that the reaction to that was not, I'm sorry for your loss, but it was more of almost a personal attack on me Mm. for now I'm, uh, I'm now, I'm, I'm no longer a valuable byproduct to that animosity, right? Interesting. So yeah. it's almost like having lost a, a chip that you could previously use. Yeah, exactly. So you, you notified your mom about the death of your biological father. Yeah. You were the one to tell her. Yeah. Yeah, I did. Wow. What was that like? It sucked. <laughs> it sucks, man. I mean. Were you at the funeral? No. Mm. Uh, I was actually getting through working out and I got a bunch of messages on my phone. And he lives in Ohio, you know, here we are in LA. So, um, I had to, uh, I had to field all these calls and it was basically his partner is, you know, his, she's been with him for 30 years, but it's like your dad died. Um, he died in his sleep. So, Hey man, that's great. In his bed. Can't ask for anything better than that. But, um, he, uh, when he died, you know, he didn't leave anything, right? There's nothing. He had no, he was penniless, you know, the old, that, that's how it went. Um, and 
it's heavy because you know you're you know three thousand miles away and you're you're trying to you're the only you're next of kin so you're responsible for signing all the documentation to you know process bank accounts you know the mortuary uh everything so which is difficult in particular at a time like that when you're trying to process and deal with a lot of emotions and thoughts and you're you're having to deal with the mundane right in yeah. a way yeah. that's difficult i remember um I think I've talked about it before. I'm not exactly sure when, but I remember um, I was introduced to somebody whose son, 25 years old, mm-hmm. um, was riding his bike out here in LA. They're from Ohio originally too, by the way. Okay. And he was riding his bike going to work and got clipped by somebody on the 405, got killed. Wow. And this friend of mine was introducing me to this family saying, hey, listen, they're going to come out from Ohio mm-hmm. to deal with the death of their son. They don't know anybody there. I know you, meaning this person was telling them, telling me, I know you, so can you be there for them? And, you know, look, in ministry and stuff, I do a lot of this, you know, all the time with people that I don't know. But what made this really different for me was that the people that I help in ministry generally have some type of network here, right? right? Yeah. This person, these, these two parents who came out, mom and dad came out to go basically grab, collect the body of their son. And the part that impacted me the most was the bureaucracy and the the kind of things, the mundane things, the stuff you're describing right now, the next of kin stuff, the right. signing document stuff. Right. And I couldn't help but think just how hard that must have been that the only thing I felt to do in terms of me being ministerial to them was not necessarily praying with them and all those things, which I did do, but it was, let me just take those things off your plate, right? Yeah. There was a landlord because the kid had an apartment. Okay, and the landlord was like, "Listen, I'm sorry for your loss, but like, he, you know, he owes rent. He owes rent, yeah. and there's furniture in my building, yeah. and I got to clear the space. I don't know what to do." And and so I told the dad, "I'm like, hey, listen, I, I got this. Yeah, let me just deal with this." And I went and dealt with the landlord. I cleared out the kid's apartment. I you know distributed because the, they didn't want to take stuff back with them. So I was like, "Look, there's homeless families that I think I can use this with." Sure. And did all that, but it, it was the most impactful to me putting myself in those shoes and maybe in your shoes that you're describing, dealing with like, here's this form, here's this paperwork. As you're trying to process all of this, these emotions, it was just, it was a really trippy thing for me to experience that. And I feel, hopefully it's true, that just taking some of those things out of the way maybe was helpful to them in that moment. But I, I recognize naturally how I would feel if somebody was shoving a form in front of my face or if there was a landlord saying, hey, sorry for your loss, but your kid's stuff is in my building. Get it out. I don't even know how I would begin to even think about that. You know, I studied thanatology in college, hmm. theory of death and dying. There's all these different stages when you know, somebody passes away and how, the, how the, the family or the next of kin or whoever the, you know, whoever's closest to that person has to grow through the grieving process. And... Uh, to me, it was just, you know, I just get, just get through the class until years later, I actually started to think about it. One of the things that happened uh, in the process of just doing all the mundane paperwork is it basically puts your ability to grieve in a state of cryogenics, puts it on freeze, right? Because you have to have mm. your faculties. You of course. Um, now you couple that with the dynamic I explained earlier, right? Which is a... Um, uh, uh, 
you know, a mother that, uh, you know, has animosity towards you know, the biological father and the reaction to his death there. So, and then you'd couple the you know, environmental factors, right? You know, you deal with COVID, you're dealing with recareering, you're dealing with, you know, transitions of, you know, an evolving mm. marriage. I mean, mm. all these things are happening at the same time. And my dad was, well, I think it was 75. Um, and he started to go, he started to go south. Um, believe it or not, he started to go south after, after he got the vaccine. I mean, I don't want to bring that up, but it was weird because the timing. And then later on, I learned he had like issues with his eyesight and all these weird things tied into his, into what well, there, there what has been, there, yeah, there have been lots of reported cases of people having adverse reactions yeah. as a percentage of the overall, they tend to be very small, but yeah. nevertheless, they're made up of real people. Yeah. And it was just a weird coincidence later on that yeah. I, I start to piece it together. But, um, to your point about that experience of, uh, and I don't know, I, I know when your, your father passed, he was, he was close to you, but um, I do know that you do wonder if God or if the faith that you have in the universe, whatever you want to call it, um, if your spirituality is going to keep your, um, is going to keep your fiber intact or is going to fret mm. and it's it's a it's a tough question it's a messy question right i mean to ask yourself like am i okay you know what's is this just is he dead and on a, on a shelf now in a box or did he go and, I, and i'll say this and then i i won't i won't you know keep dragging the conversation on about it but i will say this when my dad died um and i went through all that uh, it was it was tough, um, but I held it together and I kept powering through because I and I had a job to do and I had to provide and you know manage and anyway, you know the day to day. I was sitting on a balcony, okay, and California. You know we have a lot of predatory birds and a lot of coastal animals, but when was the last time you saw a red-tailed hawk? Mm. I don't know if you see them around here in, in this area, but I've never seen one. Okay, so here I am sitting there, and all of a sudden this red-tailed hawk shows up and I'm sitting, I'm not kidding you, from me to you. And, he's, and he's, he lands and he looks right at me. And all of a sudden I notice he's got something in, he's got something in his talons and then he splits. Now, where I was sitting, for him to get in there, he had to dive almost at a, almost at a 90 degree, like he had to come in and go like inverted down and land. The way wow. he did it was unbelievable. And I was like, what? And then I started, you know, of course, I was like, oh, I got to look up what, what does a red-tailed hawk mean? What does it spiritually signify? Like, it's a spiritual animal. Like, what does it signify? What did he have in his talons? Another animal. He had caught another animal. And he was landing to obviously take a break or whatever. But I was like, oh, that's heavy. Right? Oh, my God. Is that my dad? Yeah, there's some weird, if you dig in, you know, you can, inter you can get on the internet and start, you know, make yourself crazy with that stuff. But um, I was like, that's pretty, that's pretty heavy. Fast forward. Two weeks later, uh, I'm out at a, my storage facility and I'm pulling my motorcycles out. And I'm doing a bunch of nonsense with them and I'm leaving. And I pull up to the security gate and I look over and there's a red tail hawk. I, are you kidding me? Yeah. I'm like, what? Yeah. So I'm of like, course. and apparently that bird has a way of, it's like, and this is where I was like, okay, my spiritual fiber is not, it's not frayed. Like there is something there. Like I can relate to a higher power. So I was like, cool. Mm. You know, 
In the Christian tradition, there is a principle that was, I mean, it's been advanced in, in a variety of different ways from the very beginning of Christianity, but probably um, codified and made most understandable by a man named St. Ignatius of Loyola. In fact, this school that's right next to our studio here, Loyola Marymount, is named after him. Yeah. And he, you know, was uh, born in Spain, warrior, soldier, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. He was in battle got his leg blown out by a cannonball and had to basically recuperate for months in bed and had nothing to read, but like the lives of the saints in the Bible. That's all he had. Mm -hmm. And he had, you know, came like back in that day, this is, uh, St. Ignatius. This would have been the, uh, 15th or 16th century. So I'm, uh, and I'll, I'll check on that to make sure I'm right. But that's, it. he was the founder of a religious order called the Jesuits, which you may have right. heard of. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, Anyway, he's in bed recuperating. He's only got this to read. And he goes through this huge kind of transformation, right, in this process. Realizes that his life had been a lot about vanity. His life had been all about, you know, wearing the, you know, being the being a soldier and being like a commander. And, you know, he came from wealthy background and had all these trappings and his parents wanted him to do certain things. And he had kind of a breakdown, a breakthrough moment, you know? Yeah, sure. And... He ended up, uh, you know, basically discerning a vocation to follow God. He, you know, became a priest, founded a religious order. But I give you this by way of background because one of the things that he did was he developed this principle or this, you know, process called the Ignatian spiritual exercises. And well, we now call them Ignatians, but they were just called the spiritual exercises then. And one of the principles of the spiritual exercises is knowing and feeling God's consolation or desolation. Mm. And the red-tailed hawk, the thing that you're talking about, I would put into a category of consolation. Mm -hmm. And that is these little nods, these little winks, yep. these little things that you get from time to time, yep. synchronicity, coincidence, you know, mm -hmm. all these different things, but that you internalize and feel in a way and acknowledge, just like you said, okay, my stuff isn't frayed, right? There's something still there that I'm recognizing as a good thing. Yeah as a nod, as a, as a, like a memento for you and yeah. done specifically for you. Now, like I, as a Christian hear that and I go, yeah, this is God loving you and saying, Hey, mm -hmm. I've got you, I've got your back, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm showing you these little things and they mean something to you. But that's the category that I would put something like that in is consolation. The opposite of which, which I will, will ask you about, but the opposite of which is this idea of desolation, mm -hmm. which is oftentimes when we feel particularly detached from that feeling right? And sometimes God allows that distance and that separation too, as a way to fortify and build you, right? It's kind of like the principle of, you know, you work out, we've, we worked out and, and, and you know, done fitness, you do jujitsu and, and everything else. And it's a similar principle there, which is you got to kind of break stuff and you got to kind of be sore and you kind of have to, you know, be on the mat drenched in sweat, Mm -hmm. And having done like, you know, been rolling around with a bunch of guys for a long time and maybe even felt like your arm was about to get snapped off for you to uh, basically grow in that journey. Do you see what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> desolation is like yeah. that. Look at my finger. <laughs> that's jammed up from last week. I'm bruised. Yeah, it's it. But you know what? It's my fault. And that's, you know, it's maybe it's self-deprecating. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, lessons, you know. Um, yeah, I. I I would I would say that the consolation was 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 uh, was it was in the physical form was was gratifying. Um, now, now, are you a person who, in your life, like if I say, do you pray or have you prayed? Mm -hmm. 
How would you respond to that? Historically and or currently. So, okay. So that's a, I don't want to, since we're on the, the subject of, of faith, I don't want to use a cuss word, but I was thinking some about. It's your show, dude. It's you can a, do whatever it's you like, want. It's like if Rogan would say, like, there's a lot of fuck, you know, the fuckery out there on that one. But I, I, I would say that sobriety, you know, and the 12-step program is a faith-based program. And uh, it works really, really well. Um, I personally have gone through the 12 steps and I found them to be effective. Um, and Why? Because you have to do certain things uh, as an individual that are un, un, they're unnatural emotionally, that your, your mind is basically, re, it's, you're retraining your mind to think a different way. Um, listen, man, addiction, when it, come, when it comes to alcoholism for me, my, my deal was simple, right? I drank because I was trying to pour booze on top of trauma and, and basically bury it. It's, that, it's nothing. You know, I have my DYs and I have my, my bullshit, okay? I mean, I've been through it. And it, it, will, it will wreck lives. There's no question. Um, everyone has addictions for different reasons. You know, who might say, but when you do go through the 12 step program, there's a couple things that are happening in that in the steps is you're starting to acknowledge how powerless you are and how powerful the universe is. And you're also realizing that a power greater than you can actually dictate your destiny if you allow it. Right. So it's like riding a motorcycle. Like if you ever get out on like the highway and there's no cars and it's almost like you're floating. Oh yeah, it's like meditative. Yeah, of you course. get to a stage in in the twelve step program where it's almost meditative, and you're like, okay. And there's a lot of uh, it's very much in, in the same way that you would maybe uh, lend the social value to to relationships with people who you go to the same church with. It's very similar in that organization. Uh, you do create some of the best people I've ever met. Yeah. And quite frankly, being in LA, some of the most famous people you may ever see on, on the, you know, in stage or in movies, they're part of that program. Sure. And they're, what you see out there versus where they are inside that, inside those rooms, way different. Same thing in church, right? It's just a level playing field. But again, not to go off on that tangent, but the point is, is that um, what I found valuable about Prayer in uh, the course of sobriety is that it keeps you grounded and not you don't lose your your way. You don't lose your your way. You don't lose it's it's like environmental, spiritual, emotional. Right? It's like that triangle. The environment is going to be it's taxing, mm -hmm. right? Uh, emotionally, things now. I mean, with all the nonsense out there, social media, the news, and you know, doom porn and all this, this, this noise in the system, uh, that's, that's taxing on the emotions, right? And then you get into the spiritual aspect of it. That's like the tether in the ground. So for me, it was like, okay, you now have gotten through the sobriety, the physical sobriety, and then there's the emotional sobriety, and then there's the spiritual sobriety. Wow. Yeah. So it's like, it, that's why it's like it takes you know that's there's why a, there's 12 steps yeah and there's a there's a certain part of it where you have to actually go back and wrong your rights to make amends it, and a lot of people fall apart there because it's like they don't have the constitution they there's there's just so much guilt and shame wrapped around it but it's like hey man if you stay tethered to your spirituality if you get it's like getting a purple belt it's like they call it the purple cliff 
it's like, yeah, you know how to defend and you might throw some attacks around, but you're not actually a martial artist. You're just a practicing jujitsu person. <laughs> right. 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 You get into like, you get through the 12 steps, you start helping other people, you start doing things, you start lending, you start creating a, a, an actual community of friends yeah. and associates around it, like the church. It, it's like getting a black, it's like, it's a whole different experience, man. So, well, everything you've described is very, um, you know, emblematic of a Christian kind of understanding of the world. And I know that there's, that's some of the background of the people who've, who've built those 12 step programs. Yeah. And listen, the thing about it is that it, it, there are, there are, it's a spectrum of, of people out there that, that are involved in the program and some come in it for reasons that they don't want to, others do it will, you know, willingly, um, some people uh, stay in it because they need the social structure. Right. But you have to acknowledge in the program some element of transcendence, whether you call yes. it the universe or right. God or something beyond me. You described it as something greater than you are, right? That, that you can, in a way, be beholden to. Right. And that, that vulnerability and that realization that, oh, wait, it's not just me that's in charge is, in a way, transcendent. So even though I imagine... Tons of people going through the program. On some level, you have to be able to at least grapple with that fundamental premise, which is there's something bigger than me that's at play here. Right. In order for you to successfully go through that program. Yeah, and I, and I'll say this um, about it. Um, I'm not I'm not a huge uh, community member of AA. Okay. I I went through the twelve steps, and then what I did was I found people that I aligned myself with that make it easy for me to, you know, have a conversation with, with, and if I get into a, a jam, uh, if, you know, if I'm jammed up, um, so people you can call if you're fearing yeah, a and, relapse or something like well, that. It's, yeah. And I, and I'm beyond that now. Fortunately, I don't have, uh, the desires, uh, you know, when you, when you're first in sobriety, like, you know, you're sobriety is a weird trip, man, because you get into it and it's like being born again. You're completely raw. Your emotions are raw. You're physically drained. Uh, in 90 days, you're still foggy. Because um, you've been on a, you know, you, whether you're bending or whether you're chronic, your brain is twisted. It's twisted up. Yeah. And also, there's a lot of arrested, develop in, in arrested development in addiction that I, I experienced. Mm. Yeah. I mean, you kind of like stop growing personally. Um, because once, the, once you start drinking, that's, you know, you, you basically are, what you're doing is you're putting your, yourself on pause. That's the whole point of it, right? Is I would just do like brief, like, you know, it's like playing a tape and then hitting it in the middle of the song and then playing it again an hour later. But when you start doing it for you know, extended periods of time, it's got a, you start, yeah, every yeah. day you're just losing opportunity for personal growth. So when it comes to uh, spirituality and, you know, and God and, and the universe and um, all these things that are positive, what I found is that in a sober mind, an emotionally sober, spiritually sober, physically sober. Um, it's not about abstaining from alcohol. It's about being sober. It's about being present. It's about being clear. Um, you get a lot more out of everything. You get a lot more. And look, you're still raw. I'm still raw. You know, it's still, there's still a lot of uh, delicate parts of me. And for me, it's never been, I was never a, uh, I was never my experience with Catholicism in, in, in middle school was I was very young. 
Um, I didn't understand the religion. I wasn't, I wasn't born and raised around people who were going to uh, the church. So uh, other than, you know, a grandmother. So my experience with church was, you know, was limited. Um, hence spirituality, right? You'd be amazed, though, how many people who were born into a Catholic faith, who did receive their sacraments, who may have been born into a Catholic family that's been Catholic for generations. I mean, the you know, faith is 2,000 years old. Yeah. Even those people, uh, I would put myself in that category. You know, how many of those folks go through those motions, mm-hmm. but it takes a change of the heart to actually be able to unpack all the things that are in your head. Yeah. So just the the fact that you didn't know the kind of mechanics or didn't have that kind of cultural background. I mean, I understand what you're saying, but you'd be surprised. Look, in in my own journey, I was a person who was in that category, born into a a, a Catholic faith, you know, baptized, Mm -hmm. receive all my sacraments. My family is Catholic as far back as we can go. Right. Um, But I didn't know anything. I didn't understand anything about it. I I, I say understand because knowledge, again, was part of it. Like I had some knowledge of things, what to do, what not to do, like how mass works or things like that. So there was some cursory understanding. But it took, you know, an emotional uh, change and a change of, you know, spirit of soul for me to be able to see those things in a different way mm-hmm. and, and to really fully come to like an understanding of what it was. And I don't think I did this till I was, and we've known each other for a long time, but mm-hmm. I mean, I would put myself maybe even in my, I don't know, late twenties, maybe mm-hmm. early thirties mm-hmm. before I was saying, oh, wait a minute. Like now I've been doing these things, mm-hmm. but now I'm starting to understand and see what's behind them. And that ultimately it is a relationship. I mean, you talked about community and finding these pockets of people and whether it's jujitsu or motorcycles or whatever, mm-hmm. but that's community, right? right? And and kind of finding yourself in that moment, it, it took me a while to get to that point to realize, oh, wow, this the, all of these signposts are because of a journey. It's not necessarily about the signposts, right? That took a long time for me to kind of develop that understanding and come to that moment where I was like, wow, this is... This is is bigger than just the the brain knowledge or the ritual or all of those things, and it's kind of weird because it's hard to force that. Like I mean, for me, it would have been impossible if somebody would have said in my early twenties, right, mm-hmm. when you and I first met, mm-hmm. if somebody would have said, "Hey, kid, you know, here's how to, here's what it really looks like," I would have been like, "Okay, I guess I sort of understand that intellectually, but sure. I still wouldn't be living it." Do you know what I'm saying? And it just, it, 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 it takes a while and oftentimes through difficulties, through trauma, through things that you didn't anticipate where you reach, you know, you reach out in the darkness and there's nothing there, right? You, your job's gone, your whatever's gone, you got yep. no money, you got no friends. It's in those moments that like, then you grasp for the thing that's, that's, you know, from a, again, from a Christian perspective, that which is eternal, that never changes and there shows up God. And it's like, he's kind of been there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I always see God when I'm on a motorcycle. I always do. And I'll tell you the, the craziest, okay, I'll give you a good one. So have you ever ridden to Malibu uh, around 4, 4, 35 o'clock? Yes. Okay, have you ever seen the rays of light that cut through the mountains into the ocean? Yes. To me, that's about as close to the man as I've ever gotten. It's beautiful. You know, 
Yeah. It makes me a little misty. Yeah. Well, it should. Creation is beautiful. Yeah. It's all around us. I mean, that's the thing is God, you know, he, when you, when you approach it from that standpoint and you realize that like everything is a gift, mm-hmm. right? The mm-hmm. sunrise, the sunset, mm-hmm. the fact that you're alive when you're on a motorcycle in particular, how you can, your senses come alive. Yeah. You can smell, you yeah. can hear, you can feel differently. You're also much more in tune with the potential for things to go wrong. So oh, you're yeah. more in the moment. Yeah. And that's where God is, and is that's, in the moment. And that's where, that's where uh, you know, driving a car out there at the same time um, is, is, you know, you see it and it's like, oh, it's the coast. It's so beautiful. And it's, it becomes that majestic coastline drive experience. But when you're completely open like that and you're moving, and you're moving towards it. Um, and you're like, okay, that's a really cool like Zeppelin or Tool album. And you're like, wait a minute, no, that's actually like, that's way more than that. That's way more than that's that. That's way more than that. Absolutely. Right? Um, and then you, I've I've actually chased it. I've actually gone and I've chased the light. You know, I've like, okay, I'm, gonna, mm. I'm and I've actually found myself going up in the most obs- it, random places to go and try to chase that light. What a beautiful spiritual lesson right there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Yeah, it's not all about chrome and metal flake and loud motors. It's about, um, that's a byproduct. I don't give a shit about that. You know, what I care about is like, how connected can I get to the world around me? And it's kind of a bummer because, um, you know, on the flip side to that, because technology's really taken a lot of that, uh, you know, here we are sitting here in a, you know, in a podcast, but technology has really had an impact on community and spirituality. And it, you know, I don't have any social media apps on my phone. I use it. It's a, it's the dumbest phone I've ever owned. And it's the most sophisticated technology I own. I mean, I purposely dumbed it down for that reason, because it disconnects me with community and it disconnects me with being spiritual. Um, environmentally, it makes me, it stresses me out emotionally. Environmentally, it's toxic. Uh, I just, I mean, don't call me a hater, but I am one. I cannot, 20 years of being in, you know, the, in the tech business. And I got to tell you, man, I, I can't even get on a computer without like getting it's, I have almost a palpable. I'm like, Hey, I want to, if I'm going to get into a, you know, into a situation where I go and do something professionally, I want something that's going to actually help the community. I'm going to actually sell something. If I'm a, you know, I'm a salesperson, I'm going to sell something that's going to be tangible. It's a physical product that's going to give a value physically to somebody, not pump their head full of more, you know, opinion, you know, or groupthink or hive minded, you know, weirdness. Because and when, and when, when you, when we feel those things, you know, again, going back to the kind of a, maybe a Christian worldview of that, you can put that kind of thing in the category of inspiration, yeah, which is sure. that, you know, you are recognizing that the things that you contribute or do, the things that you don't contribute to and do have an impact beyond you, right? Yeah. And you, when you're in, when we're inspired, the opposite of which is temptation, when we're inspired, right? Inspiration, we are drawn to those things and those moments that are good right. for ourselves and for people beyond that. And when we choose, when we have temptation, it's kind of the opposite. Yeah. This thing is probably not good for me. And consequently, it's not just you. This idea of kind of a victimless crime or a victimless addiction to go back to addiction. Right. It really is not a real thing. And here's the thing. It's a good point. Addiction is not just, it doesn't have to be alcohol. It doesn't, be, it doesn't have to be drugs. It doesn't have to be gambling sex. It can be technology. It can be, it can be 
uh, groupthink. And that's, that's something that I think about, you know, again, I mean, not to waste our time on this topic because you can, it's just, it's so pervasive, but it's obvious. If you're on your phone and you are, and you're compulsive in, in using it, you're, you're on it everywhere you go. At the stoplight, at, you know, in the mall, you're at a dinner table with another person and you're actually on your phone talking to somebody through text, you know, or you're on a, an app, you know, a social app. To me, that's an addiction, man. Like it's affecting your physical realm. And not just yours. Everyone else's. So I'll, I'll kind of end that point with, I'm glad that Musk is doing what he's doing to Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's long overdue. And I do hope that he makes the moves he needs to make in the market to create a positive change because this has got to stop, man. I mean, it's, we are, we can't keep going down the same path as a society operating this way. It definitely has a corrosive effect on, again, individuals and communities more broadly. I want to go back to the idea of chasing the light for a second. Did you, when you started doing that, or even to this day, Mm -hmm. have you ever thought about that as prayer, as a form of prayer? 100%. That's what it was. And it, here's the thing. The first time I did it, okay? Now, keep in mind, when I'm doing this, it's 4.30, 5 o'clock on a sunny afternoon. It's called the golden hour, by the golden way. Hour. Photographers yes. call it the golden yes. hour, right? There's something about it. Just the, the air, the, the temperature in the air, it's just everything. The conditions are all right, right? For everything. Barometric you know? pressure's right. Everything. everything. Physically. You feel the, it on your skin. It's feel, a, yeah, yeah. It all works. Um, and because it's, you know, if you're, riding along the coast you're seeing the lights the break where i saw it happen was um as you come down you come through the tunnel the santa monica tunnel you go past the pier uh you get down mm, probably about to california street you get past it right right before you get to like, the incline yeah you get right right past that there's there's a right around the golden hour there's a, a very super strong uh beam of light that breaks over the mountains there, Santa Monica mountains. And, um, I said, okay, that's my time where there's not a lot of people around. So I can enjoy that experience without any distractions as it relates to, you know, being safe or, you know, I don't want to be, have to be hypervigilant when I'm in that moment. I want to be free in my mind and I want it to be almost meditative. So what I would do is I would make a habit of doing that every single Saturday. So that was my church. It was like Saturday afternoon till it was like four to like seven because, you know, sun doesn't go down in the summer till, you know, seven, seven, thirty, eight o'clock. This would be on a Saturday? Saturday, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's not a lot of people out. So, you, you know, you, you, you're not fishing your way through, you know, traffic to get, you know, get to your destination. And the destination is really the light. It's how far can I go or how close can I get to a place that gives me uh, – it's like almost like it's saying amen. It's getting to that amen. Mm. You know. Wow. Yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. It's Can cool. I give you another one of God's consolations right now? Yeah. Saturday at that time uh, is really Sunday. The beginning of the Sabbath right. happens in the early, basically after four o'clock. Okay. okay? Now, okay. this is from a Christian perspective. If you're Jewish, the Sabbath begins at that same time the day before, mm-hmm. the four o'clock 
somewhere in that on Friday. Right. And it lasts until the same time on yeah, Saturday. Right, right, yeah. But in the Christian tradition, what happened in the very early days of the church is that the Sabbath was observed on the day of the sun, Sunday. Okay, so we kind of shifted the Sabbath into Sunday. But those moments when you were doing that prayer and chasing that light and looking for that great amen was actually the Sabbath. That's pretty... So um, does that mean I'm Jewish? <laughs> no, no, it means you're... Well, I don't know. It, yeah. it, no, it, it's the Christian Sabbath. Maybe Old basically. Testament, I don't know. It's the, but I'm just saying that that moment on that particular day has that added significance, right? So that, maybe if you're realizing that now for the first time, that's another way that God was saying to you at that moment. It's like, hey, I'm here, you know, chase that yeah. light, get oh, to that no, great I, amen. I, I knew, I knew it, I knew it. Um, the first time it happened, I knew it, you know, it hit me like, and it was a, um, it was a, it was a spiritual awakening for me, you know, it was like, wow, this is this is an opportunity for you to connect with God or a higher power, you know, whoever that, whoever that is, whoever you want it to be, whoever you feel comfortable with it being, you know, whatever your, uh, at this point in your life though, Blake, who would, who would you, or what would you say it is at this point in your life? First of all, I guess, is it a what or is it a who at this point for you? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a complicated question. Um, you know, God to me is not a, uh, it's not a guy in a robe with a beard. Okay. God is not, uh, it, it's not an alien. It's not, you know, it's not the, uh, it's not the force of nature. Um, it is your, um, it is your own personal, for me, it's my own personal interpretation. It's how I feel, uh, Based on that moment, it could be a relative that passed away that's smiling at me. It could be uh, a, it could be a, a, it could be some sort of fifth paradigm, you know, for what you want to say, in lack of a term, it could be that. Um, but whatever it is, it's a moment when you're, I'm connecting with that. It's a moment where it's, it's like self care for the soul. Mm. It's like I gotta work out. Oh shit, that sucks. Mm-hmm. And then you get done, you're like, oh, it feels good. Feels great. Yeah, glad I did it. And I always, and I always used to come back from those rides as a different person. I never went out with, you know, I want to be uh, some, you know, bat, Billy badass on a motorcycle. No, it was like I want to go and ride and experience that moment. I want to ride and enjoy. It. And it was, it wasn't. Even, it could have been a skateboard. Who would have known it was a motorcycle? I'm just using that as the, that was the vehicle. That was yeah, the for you it was that. That was the transportation to get to that place. I tried it in a car, it didn't work. Uh, plenty of days of sunsets on the beach didn't fly, but for some reason. And so whatever that God was, that God for me was consistent. And that's what made the difference. And God is consistent, yeah. yeah. Not changing. It's like, didn't matter what the conditions were, uh, with traffic or uh, the temperature. But whenever I saw those rays of light over the mountains, I was like, okay, like this is my time with God. And it's, it's not, it's maybe 20 minutes, man. It's not a long time. Cause you know, lights, lights dip. Once it goes past the mountains, you're, it's done. But it's just enough to, take care of some of the needs that I had in my soul, right? 
And then when I would stop, usually I would stop after, you know, it's like when you, when, when a service ends and you shake hands, it's like when I would go somewhere, I was, I was a completely different person. Now, trust me, there's been plenty of times when I've ridden and I pull in somewhere and, and there's a, you know, there's a guy and, you know, I'm not as friendly to that person or I'm just, I don't, you know, they're just another person. But after that experience, I'm like, you know what, you, you need to actually respect your fellow man, you know, like have some. You don't know what that person's going through. I had I had a guest on the show not too long ago who talked about things in terms of kind of spiritual ROI, mm. right? And wow. the way that he put it was that when he had those moments of proximity with God in mm. his own way, um, he noticed that he was more understanding, yeah, more gentle, yeah, more open for sure. And and the the less he did those things. In his case, it was other things. In your case, it's this kind of golden hour, this chasing the light. Yeah. He realized that when you didn't do those things, the ROI dropped, right? It was like, I was shorter. I was, you know, grumpier. I was more, you know, apt to not be as generous or open or whatever those things are. Sure. And, and you kind of notice those things about yourself on the basis of these experiences that you have. Look, everything that you've described, <clears throat> I mean, it sounds like church is what it sounds like, you know, in a way. Yeah. It is, yeah. It is kind of a church. Yeah. Um, and, and, and what's interesting about that is, you know, for me to go into uh, a formal church setting, okay, with uh, a full service is very different because I'm not educated on the mechanics of it. I'm not educated on the dynamics uh, because I don't spend a lot of time in that environment. It's not to say that I'm not against it. I'm just not exposed to it. So for me, it was, okay, how do you take care of your soul? Uh, how do you spend time with God? Where are you going to do that, right? That's, for some reason, that just seemed to be, and, and you hear people say, oh, that's my church. And I used to never really, I didn't never click for me. Like, oh, what do you, like, a lot of guys, like, using jujitsu as an example, like Sunday mornings, there's a, uh, an open map, but you got to be a high level. So you know, I go in there, and, you know, there's a lot of guys I've been with for over a decade, and. Um, yeah, one guy, oh, that's my church. I'm like, ah, what do you mean? Like, he's like, because he's, it's an opportunity for him to give back and it's an opportunity for him to sure, connect has, with his community. Yeah. And I'm like, okay, I get it. Yeah. Um, mine was more solitude, you know, but also I think mine was too, was, it was an attempt to, and I don't know if this is something that's common in, in the Christian faith or in any particular, uh, denomination. But for me, um, it was, it was more about, taking care of my soul, but it was also a lot about, you know, trying to figure out what was ailing me, what was tormenting me, right? It's very easy to forget that when you're, there's all these things happening, right? You're riding the wind, the, you know, you're having hand-eye coordination. It's pretty easy to go, you know, to go into that meditative state. But what I will say is that was a big part of it was, it, it was an opportunity for me to get away from that physical, yeah. emotional, and then connect with the spiritual. That idea, though, is, I mean, deeply, deeply, deeply biblical and Christian. And, uh, you know, just kind of staying on that tip for a second, it yeah. applies to other faiths as well. But the idea of solitude, yeah, the idea of kind of going out into the desert so you right. can hear more clearly. Yeah, I mean, look, even in, in the Bible, Jesus himself, right, and many times when he would perform a miracle, and everybody around him was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is, I've never seen anything like this. Yeah. And they'd go to scoop him up and want to parade him like a king or whatever, you know, time after time, Bible says he goes off in, into the wilderness by himself. 
goes off by himself at that moment when he's supposed to be lauded and paraded and celebrated he chose the opposite and you know there's long lines of monastic traditions you know my brother as you know is a monk right right? out in the desert praying a lot of times in solitude because there's a great um you know thinking tradition that says that god's voice is not just heard better in the silence but that god's voice is the silence. It's so funny to say that. You've been out to the desert plenty of times, you know. There's a lot of people, obviously, in this country that have never been to the desert. If you look at, you know, if you look at where Jesus lived, it was basically a semi-arid environment. I've been there. It is very arid. Okay, so yeah. it's arid. Yeah. So Tundra might be the closest. We might, maybe that's the, yeah. the greenest it would get, would be maybe called Tundra. There are places that are very, you know, verdant and there's lots of you know there's there are places you can see trees and but but basically you're in an arid environment there's no question yeah so one of the things that i i have also realized about being in in those types of environments and just in travels is uh, there is a you know people this is god's country well if you've ever been in god's country you know the desert you know and looked at the coastline up the coast where there's nobody around the solitude, it's quiet. There's no mechanical noises. There's no, no buzz. There's no city lights. There's no, it's just, it's nature. It's God's creation. And you're like, wow, it's really quiet. I, I went out to China, you know where China Lake is? Mm-mm. China Lake is, uh, it's like adjacent to the Mojave, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to go up like to 395, like you're going towards Mammoth, and then you peel off. And anyway, years ago I went out there, and I remember, it was the first time I ever heard true silence. True silence. It's powerful. And it's so, it's so quiet out there that you, it's almost like you could cut the air with a knife. It's like it's thick. You can't, it's almost like someone put uh, you know, noise-canceling headphones on. Solitude. Um, and it's so vast. And I think that to me is a big, you know, that's, a, that's why I understand why retreats and all these things that happen, they happen in those areas because to your point, there's a lot of there's there it, it it's conducive for creating of a, course it creating is. a solitude experience and it can also be very overwhelming to people that yeah. silence is very dense it's very thick it's very thick when you you know I describe going to visit the monastery where my brother's at sometimes it's like putting your head underwater everybody can recognize that idea of like right it's like everything just kind of goes away right but if you have a lot of things that are buzzing around inside of you. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got, whether it's traumas or past hurts or that internal voice, those things initially can get very loud. Yeah. They get very loud. They want to bust out in that silence. And it can be a very difficult experience for people. Now, there is a moment, like with anything else, where you kind of have to break down or break through. You have a choice, right? Um, but it's not just, you know, we deal with silence in the in a kind of abstract way, in a kind of like a tourism way. It's like, we're, we're going to go out to this great resort and right. it's relaxing and whatever. But really, if we look at what we do all day, we're filling our, our that vacation with something. You know, it's dinners of course, or of course. time with our loved ones or yeah. whatever. So it really is in silence. But when you're out in the desert and it's just you and you're walking around and you hear that, that density or you feel that density. Feel the density, yeah. It's a heavy deal sometimes. Super heavy. And when the and, and I've been out there where you the light and the typography is so unique and everything about the landscape is its own. You know, it's like nothing else. Um 
it is, it, 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 I've had moments out there where I'm like, okay, like this is, you know, this is, this is definitely, there's a spiritual dynamic going on right now. No question. And I'm, I'm being, I'm being, I'm getting to experience, I'm, I have the opportunity to experience this. Immerse yourself, run with it. And I've done that. Um, so yeah, I mean. My, my, uh, my favorite line, this is, I shouldn't say favorite cause there's a lot, but one of my like top, you know, uh, passages from the Bible, mm-hmm. it's from the old Testament. Mm-hmm. It's Exodus chapter three, verses 14 through 16. And the backstory for those who might not recognize that, that passage, or maybe just for you is it's Moses, right? Mm-hmm. He's in his forties. He's had a life. Mm-hmm. In fact, he was in Egypt. He yeah. did a bunch He's of a stuff. General. He was, he was, he was a, you know, big time dude. He yeah, had yeah. like all the trappings and whatever. Yeah. And he's, he's in, you know, he's in the latter part of his life, frankly. And he's a shepherd, you know, he's in a tent and, you know, then there's the whole burning bush episode and all that. And he yeah. goes and susses that out. And then at one point, chapter three, read right around these verses, you know, God reveals himself to him and he says, take your sandals off because you're standing on holy land. There's all these great, great passages. But there's this one moment where God says, hey, I've got this mission for you. Right. And Moses is like, wait, wait, why me? First of all, like I'm older. Like there's this whole like I, it makes no sense. You're picking me. Right. But there's this moment where he says to himself, or, you know, God says, I want you to go to Egypt and set these people free because they've been calling out to me and they're, they need, they need liberation. Mm -hmm. And Moses says to him, okay, well, if I go, like, who should I say sent me? Like, who who are you? Yeah. Right. Because there's a ton of gods and all kinds of things that people were, you know, ascribing to. And it's such a human question. Like, who am I talking to? Who is this? Right. And God's answer, I think is exactly the verbal description of the solace and silence that you just described. God's answer is when they ask you who sent you, mm-hmm. tell them I am sent you. Mm-hmm. I, I am. That is my name. The isness is my name. Mm-hmm. I am is who sent you. This like dense reality of being that is the, the source of all being. The starting point of everything. I am. The fact that I exist is another way to say it, right? Sure. I be, right? That is who mm. is sending you. And, and it's like, to me, that is, it's so simple, but it's so profound when you really think about it. It's like, you know, what's your name? I am. That's so, my name. So I, I have a question back to you. So if you were to think about this weekend, right, which is, you know, obviously it's, it's, a, it's a huge, 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 uh, in, in the U.S., even the world, it's, it's a it's a big, you know, Sunday's a big day, right? Well, these three days in the yeah. Christian calendar. Yeah, so today's good Friday. Right? Thursday, Friday, and basically the Easter vigil, which is on Saturday night. Those are the three holiest days of the year. Right. Okay. So all that being said. And how, we're recording this on Good Friday. And we're on, Yeah, we're on Good Friday. So, okay. So that being said, uh, a lot of people, it's, they use it almost like, you know, it's like any other, it's on the 4th of July or it's. It's any other day, but what they do is they there's trappings, there's holiday trappings, versus and recognizing what the day really means, really understanding its 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 intent spiritually, and that's an avenue that I am just I'm starting to explore those types of days, right? Like what does that day mean? And you being you know heavily involved. Um, in your in your faith 
do you see that there are wayward uh, church members that come based on holiday? Oh, I have to go to church because it's... Of course. Yeah, and it's it's like that to me is it's like it's well, a half a veil, right? Well, well, famously, there are Easter Christmas Christians, right? right? And who kind of show up twice a year. So, yes, it's true. What do I think of it? Well... You know, there was at one point where I kind of was one, right? Yeah. So in, in a way, it's you, you can't cast um, any aspersions without them immediately coming back to you and shining sure. a pretty bright light. Sure. I've heard those kind of things in a way as um, a reason or a rationale for people not wanting to participate in organized religion is the thought that there are so many people who don't really take it seriously, right? Yeah. Who don't show up when they should, but, sh- you know, kind of do it to make appearances and all that. But to be honest, when I hear that kind of objection, I think about it in the terms of like fitness, just to use that example. So imagine saying to somebody, well, I'd like to work out Mm. or I'd like to go to the gym. Let's use that as an example. I want to go to the gym, Mm. but dude, 80% of the people in that gym are working out there, but then they're going to leave and they're going to swing by McDonald's or they're going to drink all night or smoke a cigarette. So, but what does that have to do with the gym? And what does it have to do with the value the gym can give you, right? So it's easy to look at people's failings to live up to things. But if you really think about it, they're kind of immaterial to the thing itself. In other words, I don't know anybody who would say, I don't work out because everybody else is a slob. Yeah, that's not. That wouldn't, that doesn't pass the logic test, right? But yet you hear a lot of times, well, I don't go to church because I think people in church are hypocrites. I'm like, well, okay, well, maybe they are. What if all of them are? Let's yeah. say all of them are hypocrites, right. but what if, what does it have to do with what church? Does, you what, know what I mean? What does it have to do with you? That's the way I look at it, right? Like selfishly, when I go and I connect with, you know, God or my higher power, or whatever, I do it because I know that it's time with him or it or them or whatever it is. I'm, it's my connection and it's, it's, I feel it. Now, does that mean that there's some interconnection with other people in a structured environment? Maybe. However, I also look at the people that go to church on Easter and Christmas only as it's, you know, it, it's like they're, it's, it's kind of a, it's a half a veil, right? Like, um, and I don't know if they practice and they say, I don't need to be you know, that intimately involved with the day-to-day of what's going on with the community and the church and all that. But my, I guess my point is, is that um, when you go to church, if it's about putting up um, some sort of a, a veneer of, you know, of, of, an, of what you might be portraying yourself as in other environments, then that's a big disservice to you. And it's also a big disservice to your, to your connection with God. That's a bummer. It, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to disagree with you there. I think that people who do do that, they, they're, they're on a journey and they have a lot that maybe is still to be revealed that would impact how they view these things moving forward. Sure. Um, so there's growth there to be done. But what I'm saying is, we have to remember we ourselves are growing, right? And we ourselves maybe came from similar situations. I know I did. You know, I don't know that I was ever an Easter Christmas, but there were times when I just was completely tuned out. I didn't, I, I didn't go at all. Sure. 
college years and all that kind of, of stuff. And so, but ultimately the question of, you know, what does that have to do with you and what does that have to do or what does that mean about the thing itself, right? Whether it's the gym or the church, that's a question we oftentimes don't ask ourselves when we kind of get to this point of like, well, this is, this is the reason why I don't go. Everybody's a hypocrite. People don't believe what they say. I get that. And that, and that shouldn't be the case. Sure. But even if it is the case, again. Well, I will say one other thing about that is the spirituality for me, you know, I, as I've gotten older, now I'm 54, mortality starts to, you know, as a cliche as it might sound, set in. And you realize, hey, wait a minute. Uh, I have maybe 20, 25 years left of life. And the last 20 years, I was, you know, fighting through the crash zone, you know, to try to make, you know, money and try to, you know, get up the ladder and all that other exhaustive energy was spent on, you know, the 20-year mark. Here I am. Okay. What did you miss? So that's 20 years that went by like, boom. I mean, it was, it, it, and, I, and for young people, I don't think they, they don't get it, right? To them, they don't. They don't have a, uh, a bearing on how quick 20 years can go by because they're young, right? It's like, oh, my teenage years, everything's so, everything's so formative. It's like high school, college. Yeah, there's a next thing. It's there's a next, a next thing. thing, yeah. But the, when the next thing is dying. Yeah, let me tell you, when you get past, like, perspective. when you go through, like, when you're like a, a seven-year sitcom and you, the arc of the story's already, you know, happened, sure. and now it's like, the, it, it, this is the last episode, you're like, on to the next and family members start to pass away and people your age start passing away. You're like, hey, wait a minute, man. Maybe I should tap into this spirituality God thing because I don't want to live my days, you know, as a kind of with a vacancy sign on my head. Yeah. And look, you know? everybody faces that no matter what your faith is, you're going to get to that moment of realizing that mortality is next. And here's the trippy thing, dude. The, the trippy thing is that Really, if you think about it, because people die at four years old and 14 years old and yeah. 40 years old and 100 years old, that moment is always in front of us. And, yep. you know, there's a, a saying in Latin, memento mori, and it's something that in the monastic tradition, the monks always have in front of them. It just means remember your death, because we're all, no matter what age you are, you're not guaranteed the next day. Right. And so kind of getting right with the moment, getting right with God is like an important, you know, driver. And the reality of it is, is that no matter what you've done, you don't take anything with you. No. One of the greatest, um, you know, every Christmas I watch, uh, it's a wonderful life. It's just like a tradition. Sure. And there's this one scene, I don't know if you remember it, but there's this one scene where the little kid goes and he tries to talk to his dad to deal with the situation that he's contending with. And in the back of that scene, there's a painting on the wall mm -hmm. and like the camera flashes over to it for a second. And the painting says, all that you take with you is what you've given away. And it was like, boom. And that's not from scripture. It's a, it's a biblical idea, but it's not necessarily like a quote from scripture. It's just a really well said phrase, but it's true. It's true for everybody, no matter what you have, no matter what you think you have possess achieved, it doesn't matter. We all leave every one of those things behind. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean afterwards? And those realizations are important, deep, heavy, troublesome, sometimes shocking revelations that we put off in some cases as long as we possibly can. But every single person, 
will face that moment when they realize that they're taking nothing with them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and here's my, my kind of final thought on, on spirituality and, and God is at that age, at 54, is that I look at it as I want to enjoy that realm, that dynamic, that I want to experience that now that I've got enough life experience where I can appreciate it. I don't want to be uh, sequestered, you know? I don't want to, oh, I have to go to church on Sunday. You know, oh, I got to go deal with that. You know, that, that's, I don't want to do that. I want to actually enjoy it because I want to be a better person, right? I mean, yeah, do I like to do things that are life-threatening, you know? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, but it says walking across the street, right? Like, but my point is that at, at this age, I'm not interested in material possession. I'm interested in uh, the emotional and spiritual content that that possession can provide me. And if that possession is a vehicle or some sort of a, it's a, it's a tool to help me get closer to that, then I'm all for it. If it's not, hence the phone, then I put the thing away and use it for what it is, right? And I think for me at that age and growing up as a Gen X and then growing through the birth of the internet and through its sublime to now ridiculous state um, has actually triggered a lot of that spirituality because now I'm seeing, hey, wait a minute, God is actually watching and he's going, hey, man, you're fucking up. This is not what I, this is not the program that I set out for you guys. Come on, like pull back on the reins here. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to take his advice and I'm going to create a different kind of relationship with my fellow man. And I'm going to create a different kind of relationship with him. And I'm going to enjoy that because that to me is much more important than anything else. And I was never able to really understand that. I think until the death of my dad, until I started hearing about people dying out in their fifties. And that's, that's just kind of how I, I put my flag in the ground on mm. that today. Now, who knows, man, if, you know, if you were asking me in two weeks, it might be different, but I'm saying as so. of today, it's like, that's kind of where it's at. Well, I only have one word for, for that at this moment. And I think that's a resounding amen. Uh, not much I can sure. add to, to that. Um, so we'll we'll uh, we'll break here. Um, thank you, yeah, man. for no, for good. having this conversation. Yeah. I really appreciate it. And I think a little heavy for me, but it'll help good. a lot of people. Yeah. So I appreciate you being here, and I appreciate yeah. you being my friend. Too. Yeah, you too, man. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-USA.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.